That's Rick James and Super Freak here at your local radio station, 106.7 Ribble FM. We are streaming live tonight from our spectacular Studio 3. What do you reckon about it, by the way? Let us know. It's at Ribble FM on Facebook and Twitter. There you can also find out more details how you can watch this broadcast live if you are listening on 106.7 FM on our mobile apps, also on the smart speakers and everything else like that as well. Now, I must warn you, if you've got the young ones with you watching the show at the moment, the next couple of hours may be a little bit more scarier for them, so you might just want to get them to bed or just hiding behind that cushion because the next couple of hours we have some really scary stories for you. Uh, one read by Morgan Rowe as well. He's going to be uh, taking us through in three parts for this scary story coming up soon. We've also got a former volunteer of Ribble FM. Tom Watts is going to be here with us uh, just uh, performing a couple of tricks for us and also reading some stories and lots, lots more. And the bargain of the show, uh, which is going to be happening after 8 o'clock tonight, is, of course, Jasper Cherry, the Britain's Got Talent uh, finalist for 2020, a Ribblesdale High School pupil, uh, school pupil, and, of course, uh, a wonderful lad. He's got his uh, uh, show at Rottenstall this week, which you can find out more on the Ribble FM website. Just a big thank you once again to Francesco's. You can see them at the bottom here in Cliverow. They have supported the show for tonight. So thank you very much to the guys and the girls at Francesco's. And let's move on now to our next spooky story. And like I said, a pre-warning, this may be spooky for your young children. So please do get them out of the room or maybe just hide them over to the kitchen. Uh, because Simon Entwistle, uh, the legendary uh, historian across the Ribble Valley, is going to read us part two of his scary stories. For the next story, we're going to turn the clock back in time to a bitterly, bitterly cold day in the town of Clitheroe, when a coach has just arrived in the grounds of Clitheroe Castle and made its way up those twisting, twisting pathways to what we now call the museum building. Now, way back in 1874, the Shaw family lived there. The Shaw family were very, very wealthy textile barons and they relied entirely on a young lad called John T. Martindale to go to the city of Liverpool, watch the ships come in, laden with cotton from Louisiana, Mississippi and Egypt. He would then select uh, from each bale various strands of cotton, place those strands of cotton inside a leather pouch and then visit the textile barons of Blackburn, Burnley, Nelson, Cone and Clitheroe. He got out of the coach that day at Clitheroe Castle. It was freezing, so cold, his coat had nearly frozen to his body. He made his way inside the Shaw residence and felt the rays of heat emanating from the fire. There was Mrs Shaw. Ah, oh, Jaunty, um, the textile barons are all upstairs dining. Um, if you'd like to pop up and see them, they'll all be ready very, very soon. Uh, you're looking a bit jaded, Jaunty. What's the problem? Said Mrs Shaw. Well, it's me wife. She's expecting our first child, and I told her I'd be by her side when she gives birth to our child. Oh, don't worry, Jaunty. Your coach and horses have just gone round the back of the building. Your horses are being fed and watered, and you'll be on your way very, very soon. He made his way upstairs and met the textile barons, and they said, I've got 100 bales from Louisiana, 600 from Mississippi, and some really good quality Egyptian cotton. They took the orders. Jaunty then went downstairs and started pacing the downstairs room, looking out of the window. Where's me coach? Where's me coach? I've got to get back home. My wife's expecting our first child. I've got to get back home. It became slightly dark outside and dusk was coming in very, very quickly. 
As he gazed out of the frosty window, he saw in front of the home six horses and a coach. He could just make out the shape of the words Lancaster, Manchester on the side of the coach. He rushed out and climbed on board. Inside the coach, it was very damp, it was very, very musty. And as his eyes became accustomed to the light, he realised that in there with him were two other people that gave the appearance of being definitely female. One, a lady sitting next to him with a long Victorian bonnet disguising her face. Right in front of him, another young lady with a Victorian bonnet again disguising her face, but on her lap, a baby wrapped in a blanket. He tried to get a conversation going. Uh, excuse me, ladies, uh, would you mind if you just open the window, please? It's not very nice in here. There was no answer. He could have been talking to two statues. The coach jutted forward and made its way down towards the castle gates in Clitheroe with the sound of horses' hooves, a bit like... Main Street in Clitheroe. Johnty made another request. Uh, excuse me, ladies, um, would you mind if we just open the window, please? No answer. The coach got to the town centre. He made a third and final request. Ladies, would you mind if I just open the window, please? It's not very nice in here. No answer. In a fit of rage, he stood up. He reached for the uh, leather strap attached to the side of the window frame to pull the window frame to let some cool, fresh air in. To his horror, the whole door frame was rotten and came away in his hand. He then heard a scream, a high-pitched scream. He glanced to the right. The lady sitting next to him had slowly lifted her face and where there should have been a face was a hollow, dark cavity. Johnty screamed in terror. He fell out of the coach and banged his head and was knocked unconscious. He came round some five, ten minutes later with a rather nasty head wound. He woke up in this blizzard, a terrible wind whipped up. He made his way through the snow and the slush and walked back up towards Clitheroe Castle and got back to the Shaw residence. As he opened the door, there was Mrs Shaw. Johnty, where have you been? Let me dress that head wound. Oh, I got my coach. This woman, she had no face, this woman, she had a baby. Johnty, calm down, calm down. Your coach is still around the back of the building. And if you look outside, the snow is so deep and so thick that any coach that arrived here would have definitely made an imprint. John T spent the night at the Shaw residence. The following morning, his original coach was ready. He got back to Bromley Cross Bolton where he lived, just in time to witness the birth of his baby daughter. He did some research and found that the Lancaster Manchester did leave the Shaw residence way back in 1871. To get to the city of Preston, it had to go to a place called Geoffrey Hill. To this very day, Geoffrey Hill is an open, expansed area with a ravine on either side. I guess the wind caught the Lancaster Manchester. It blew it down the ravine, killing an elderly lady, a young woman and her baby, six horses and a driver. Jaunty was convinced that was indeed the coach she got into. This very day, when it's very, very quiet in the town centre, the sound of a ghostly coach and horses can be heard going through the town with this amazing, echoing sound. 
ghost coach of Clitheroe. Listen to Ribble FM anytime, anywhere. Download our dedicated smartphone app. Go to ribblefm.com. <laughs> scary story this evening. The name of this story is Zombie Town. I wasn't always like this. Like what, you ask? I guess so... brave. It was this crazy thing that happened that changed everything for me. I'm a little different now, and let me tell you about it. But I'll have to start from the very beginning. I used to be scared of a lot of things. If there was a scary movie on TV, I'd cover my eyes, ask Mum to change the channel. If it was Halloween, I used to pretend that I'd hurt my leg so that I wouldn't have to walk around the neighbourhood and dress up with all the other kids. The sight of seeing all those crazy dressed-up outfits as the sun went down and the sky grew dark, it gave me the heebie-jeebies. It's not the way I thought there were real monsters or anything. It's more that my mind played tricks on me. I thought... What if there were monsters out in the night, and I thought they were just kids dressed up? What would happen then? Sometimes it felt like I just couldn't stop thinking these thoughts. I was scared of putting the bins out at night, 
Sometimes in bed, I was even scared of my own shadow. I knew there was probably nothing out there, or nothing real things anyway, but I just couldn't help it. Mum and Dad knew all about it, but they were pretty good to me. They thought they could make me feel better by saying, Don't worry, Elroy. Your imagination is worse than real life ever is. And I knew it was, but it didn't help. Anyway, Mum and Dad knew how I felt, and, it didn't, and didn't push me to do anything I didn't want to. But one day that all changed. It changed when my school sent me home with a note that our class was going away on a school camping trip. I wasn't ecstatic about it, but I guessed I was going to be sleeping outside, in the dark, in tents. Plus, it was in the bush. I haven't told you something yet. I live in Australia. Have you ever been to Australia? It has a reputation for being, well, kind of the scariest place on earth. There are all sorts of things in the bush in Australia. All sorts of things that can kill you. Spiders, for one thing. Snakes, for another. I even heard of kangaroos and possums breaking into people's houses in the evening looking for food. That was one thing I didn't want to wake up to. Waking up to see big whiskery faces start staring at me in the middle of the night with no one to hear me scream. Or worse, everyone in school hearing me scream. No thanks. So I said to mum and dad, I didn't want to go camping. I'd rather stay at home and clean my room. And I think it was telling them that that really made them concerned. <laughs> he sat on the edge of my bed and said, sometimes the scariest things aren't so bad once you start doing them. Your imagination can conjure up all sorts, sorts of things that are far, far worse than reality. Nah, I said, I'm all right, thanks. But mum and dad didn't take my response as hoped. They exchanged glances at each other and dad looked back at my face, examining it as though he could see something else that was what I said. I felt my face go red, then I looked away. After a big pause, he finally said, I think it's better if you go. But dad, I said, I was shocked. I, they'd never forced me to do anything before I didn't want to. It will be good for you, mum said in the doorway. We don't want you to live your life forever being scared of things. You'll be supervised and camping is fun. You'll make new friends. I'm not scared of anything, I replied, but I could hear my voice trembling. I was just so shocked that they would force me. I just think it will be boring, I added. As mum and dad looked at me, their eyes grew soft. And even before dad had reached out to bring me into a hug, I just knew nothing I could say would make them change their mind. Great, I thought as he pulled me into his armpit. I'd make them sorry for me. There was no getting out of it now. On the day of the camping trip, it was kind of grey and heavy. I could feel my backpack cutting into my shoulder blades. I kissed my little twin brothers on the top of their heads before I left. For some stupid reason, I felt like I might never see them again. Mum have, had, uh, have said I was being dramatic, but I couldn't help it. The wet look of the rooftops that morning, the sharp smell of asphalt on the road, the call of a passing crow. It all felt ominous. But my brothers didn't notice a thing. They were only three years old, too young to be scared. They grinned and waved at me. Then one of them picked up the cat by its neck and made it wave to me too. Poor Goldie. She yowled, but she was used to their kind of rough love. And I thought, at least I'm not a cat stuck with my two little brothers. Maybe mum and dad were wrong. Maybe reality was worse than our imaginations. I straightened my back and left them, ready to take on fate like an adult would do too. But my bravado faded quickly once our bus had pulled away from school. On the bus, I didn't feel very good, so I talked 
I didn't talk much to my friend Jake, but only let him laugh and make jokes with the other kids on the bus. Alone with my worries, I pressed my head to the window and felt the vehicle rattle over every pothole in the road. I could still see the heavy clouds piling one on top of the other in the corners of the sky. The camping ground was on the edge of the National Park. All that nature should have been relaxing, but everything now here looked dark and foreign. When we pulled into the camping ground, Jake turned around and offered me a raisin from the packet of his parents had packed him into his lunchbox. No thanks, I said, trying to smile. More for me, he shrugged, hit me on the arm, smiling. Jake was small and his dark eyes twinkled. He didn't understand being scared of things because he was always so happy. I gazed around me and stepped off the bus and tried to see with the area with normal eyes, like Jake would. When I looked at the camping ground like that, I could almost convince myself it was all perfectly ordinary. I could see there were a big barbecue area. Everyone could eat together. Next to it was some toilet cubicles. Investigating, I saw that there were tall lockers lining the walls, some with showers at the end. Coming back out again, I could see there was a line of trees rising gently over a smooth hill, a river where we could swim, and everything was quiet. All the birds must have been sleeping or flown elsewhere. I set up my tent next to Jake's and started to put my sleeping things out. The day remained heavy. I felt kind of sweaty. It was as though the whole place was holding its breath for something. Even the kids in my class, usually boisterous, were murmuring and quiet as they made up a set lunch for us. We ate them with bread and ketchup, hot dogs and hot, delicious food. It settled me a bit, but I started to feel a bit better. Then the teachers told us that we could spend the afternoon swimming or going for a bushwalk. Most of the kids wanted to go swimming, so I went on the bushwalk instead. The murky brown water of the river had all sorts of creatures that I didn't want to think about. Besides, I secretly wanted to see what animals were living in this area so I could identify them and, they make their, and their sounds that they make in the night. Mr Masters, the music teacher, was pretty happy to be on the bushwalk. He hummed as he pointed out the different kinds of eucalyptus tree, the genus of rocks. He wore sandals I'd never seen him in before and the socks were pulled up to his knees. A broad floppy hat and he smelled of sunscreen, like he'd rolled in a pool of it. For the snakes, he said, he winked as he saw me seeing his socks, as if snakes would balk at the sight of a bit of material. There were only a few other kids with us, two boys I didn't know very well. They were pretty quiet. Jake was also there, though. He loved Mr Masters. He asked so many questions. Mr Masters was always so delighted to have such a curious student, and he answered them all. What kind of rock is that? Jake kept saying. Is it poisonous? What do you do if you get stung by a hornet? Jack talked so much. Mr. Masters responded so enthusiastically that I realised with a sinking feeling after only moments that it'd be between the two of them they'd scared all the animals away. Apart from the rocks and the plants, of course. We didn't see a thing. In fact, the clouds came over heavier and there was a moment I looked in the sky and wondered if we were even going to get caught in a downpour. Mr. Masters must have thought of the same thing too. He'd been looking at his mobile phone to see which paths to take, but he suddenly looked up at the sky, stopped short. He made a few taps on his phone, then frowned. Finally, he said, my phone's not working. He tapped his screen. No reception, he confirmed. He sniffed the air, then returning to his phone. I know the way back, but I can't check if the rain is coming. He could have just looked at the sky, I thought. Rain was a certainty. The sky was pitch black now, the wind had completely died down. 
and it was dead quiet. Suddenly, a low moan from somewhere far away. All the hairs stood up on the back of my neck. It was the weirdest sound. Even Jake looked surprised. And for once, he said nothing. Mr. Masters stopped looking at his telephone, and then looked up instead of the sky. All of us stopped and listened. All was quiet. I'll be back soon for part two.
Welcome back for part two. <clears throat> Not even a cicada chirped, and then, just when we thought it was all over, it happened again. The murmur. But this time there were more moans. This time, it was like a chorus. Must be the kids doing some activity back at the camping round, Mr. Masters said. They've all just got a bellyache from lunch, Jake said. <laughs> the other boys all laughed with us. But I didn't laugh. The sausage from my lunch sat heavy in my belly. I could taste it in the back of my teeth. Well, let's go back anyway, he said briskly. We've been gone for more than an hour. When I look back upon it now, I know that something in me wanted to say no. It was something different to the usual fears I felt. But, and I don't know if this has ever happened to you, I was scared to say anything. At the moment, I said to myself, toughen up, Alroy. Now's your chance to show how brave you really can be, or how normal you are anyway. And so I obediently followed Mr. Masters, Jake and the other two boys, lagging only a little behind. But as we drew closer to the camp, we began to hear all sorts of other sounds too. There were moans, but also cracking sounds, like things being broken. And quite a few of the kids were screaming. Aren't they having a great time, Mr. Masters said as he smiled at us. And then suddenly there was a giant splash sound, like a hundred people running headlong into a river at once. Mr. Masters' brow, which until now had been quite wrinkled with confusion, all became smooth when that happened. He made a sound like a, ah, as though he'd finally worked it all out. They're doing water activities, he said triumphantly. They were the strangest water activities I'd ever heard, I thought. I felt my feet dragging behind me, but I still walked, ever slower, ever more reluctantly, back to the camp. Jake, on the other hand, was worried that he was missing out on anything exciting. He began to walk ahead of us, more and more quickly. He strode off before even missed the masters, and then, when the clearing came into sight, he began running towards it, his spindly legs flying as he ran. I saw him turn the corner and disappear around it. Then, it seemed that he made a shouting sound. But I couldn't make out his words. I thought he sounded panicked, and I was scared too. I couldn't help myself. I felt my friend was in trouble, and I began running too, in the direction of the barbecue area. But I stopped and slowed just before I turned the corner. What I saw around our campground was enough to make the blood drain from my face. It was terrible. It was horrific. It was the kids of my class, blank-faced, drooling, assembled around the barbecue area. At least, it looked like the kids of my class, but their faces were blue, spit hung down their cheeks slackly, and their arms were loose by their sides. When they saw me, it was as though they all saw me in unison. But their faces showed no expression. Horrible moaning sounds from the group I had heard from afar, all began coming closer as they shuffled towards me. My heart stopped in my throat. They had turned into zombies. All of them were zombies, and they, had, they advanced towards me. I realized that it was as, as I slapped bang in the middle of my own personal school zombie apocalypse. I didn't have time to think. I couldn't see where Jake had gone, but there was a gang of zombie kids shuffling up against a big eucalyptus tree, and I guessed that he must be at the top of it. Glancing around, 
I saw a tree not far away with a branch I might just be able to hop onto. I calculated my distance and ran towards it. The zombies all changed direction and headed towards me, but I was faster. I reached the tree, lifted my two hands, grabbed the lowest branch and swung myself onto it. Not feeling high enough, I managed to climb another two branches before the branches became too thin and I couldn't go no higher. There I hovered, clutching the tree. My palms were weak and sweaty, the day still weirdly quiet. Here they came now, groaning and shuffling, about fifteen of them. Their clothes were sopping wet from swimming in the river and dripped on the dry earth as they shuffled towards my tree. When they got to the tree, they reached up but couldn't get past the first branch. Seeing them up close, my heart was beating so hard I thought I might faint and fall off the tree, landing on top of them. I noticed that their skin was falling off in patches and they were salivating, actually salivating. I suppose to get a good bite into my leg that's what they were after. They tried uselessly to get further up the tree, but the bark was too smooth. I could get no higher, but neither could they. They clambered around the base of the tree, then one of them realised they could stand on a cupped hand of the other to give each of them a boost up. That was when I really started to get worried. I looked around in panic for something that could help me, nothing but a thin twig of a, of a branch by my head. I snapped it off and brandished it like a meter ruler. The zombies didn't react to my weapon. I don't think they were all too bright. But when the first struggled onto the shoulders of the second, I poked the zombie's chest with it and it sank soft into the decaying flesh like muddled clay. He kept making a weird sound and fell off the other zombie's shoulders. Victory won for me. I kept my instrument firm in my hands and commenced poking the flesh of all the zombies that ventured to get too close to that lowered branch. This time, I barely thought of Mr. Masters, but I suddenly heard a high scream. I saw him flat on his back in the toilet cubicle, pinned down by about six kids who all seemed to be chewing on him. Oh no, poor Mr. Masters. At first I felt sorry, but my feelings soon turned to panic when after the few minutes of zombies all fell back and Mr. Manster's shook himself and stood up again. It was his shuffling gait that made me realise the terrible, horrible truth. He was now a zombie himself. The more horrible truth was that he was twice the height of the other kids in my class and would have no trouble reaching that low branch. As if hearing my thoughts and now dull eyes rotated towards me, and he spotted me up the tree. Slowly, slowly, he began shuffling towards me. While my pulse thudded, panicked in my ears, what should I do when he get here? What could one boy do against an attack of zombies? His sandals dragged in the dust, like a fly caught in a window. I panicked and tried to scramble higher up the tree, but it was no good. I just couldn't get any further. And then I heard another scream and realised Jake had seen me. He was still okay. He was still human. He hadn't been turned into a zombie yet, but I could see now that a different teacher zombie was pulling on a branch that he was sitting on, shaking it determinedly like a monkey trying to get a coconut from a tree. Eventually, the inevitable happened. 
Jake lost his balance and fell from the tree. I saw him running breakneck speed towards the toilet cubicle. I saw Mr. Masters continue shuffling slowly towards me. And just as I remembered what was in the toilet cubicle, the high locker cupboards. There were no branches on the locker cupboards. I could sit on top of one of those and just kick every zombie who approached me. I wasn't going to let Mr. Masters reach me, and I put his horrible teeth around my leg. With a heroic leap, I sprang down from the tree, over the top of the kid zombies' heads, and went pelting towards the toilets myself. My advantage was my human speed. Zombies moved very slowly, and that was my only saving grace. The fear put quicksilver in my feet, and I streaked towards the toilet block, making it inside with no immediate pursuers. Sure enough, Jake was on top of one of the lockers. He'd climbed up the shoe shelves to get there. I picked one a few metres away and cl climbed up it. Kick the shelves away, he cried. I kicked them away. None of them were fixed to the wall. They made a horrible clatter in the still dull silence of the afternoon. And there Jake and I sat, pale-faced, on top of our cupboards, breathing heavily while we waited for the zombies to come. It didn't take long. They started to amass at the entry of the toilets, making their horrible groans and wet slopping noises as they pushed their way into the room. They smelled extraordinary, like wet dog and old sausages. I felt the lunch rise to the back of my throat. In waves, they came upon our lockers, rattled them, but they were too high for the zombies, and our furniture was mixed, fixed to the wall, so occasionally one creepy hand would come exploring up around my ankle, and I'd give it a swift kick, and then it was gone. This must have gone on for an hour. The human body is amazing what it can do in moments of great stress. Wave after wave of zombies attacked Jake and I on the cupboards. And wave after wave we dodged them, kicking them away with our shoe. Whenever we could. Every muscle straining with the effort not to be bitten. For I knew now what would happen if we did. Of course, some of the zombie teachers shuffled into the room and tried their hand at us as well. They were taller than the zombie kids, but they could never get their mouths near us, and their putrefied flesh was lacking the strength to pull us down. So we just kept on like this for hour after hour after hour, until I realised the sun had gone down. Soon it would be night time, and how could we keep on like this? How could we keep fighting them off when everything fell? Even we could see their advances in the dark. Besides, I was coming, becoming so tired, so strained from the stress of trying to stay alive. Even Jake, too, looked like we felt the same. What would we do when night fell? Dad, I wanted to cry, but at first I genuinely thought... He, uh, sorry, I felt the muscles trembling. Hmm. I wanted to cry, but at first I thought something was a figment of my imagination. What I wouldn't do to have my dad here now but to have him lift me from the top of this locker, carry me away from all these zombies, safe home with my mum, little brothers, and safe, soft bed. But the more I looked at this apparition in the corner, the more I realised it was my dad. He had come to save me. Then I noticed, as he began to walk towards me, only he was shuffling. My dad was a zombie too. I couldn't help it as tears began streaming down my face. What would I do now? that my dad was a zombie. We'll be back shortly for part three. Ribchester, Clitheroe, Gisburn. This is your local radio station. This is Ribble FM. 
my tears I noticed something odd with my dad's movement. Although he was slow and shuffling, his he was accompanied by glances that were not as dull as the others. He swayed through the kid zombies who, after hours of trying, were admittedly starting to get a little tired of pursuing two boys high atop the lockers. The kid zombies dropped back when my dad walked through the group, probably expecting that he might get us down after all. My dad is taller than all of the teachers. He's quite sizable. When he got to my locker, he made an authorative sound that shocked the kid zombies. 
who stood in dumb silence for a few moments before they shuffled slowly out of the room. Zombie Dad looked up at me. Very slowly, he winked. Dad, I said under my breath, almost crying with relief. Shh, he said. Just pretend to be a zombie. I've got a car outside, waiting, with three others in it. We've all escaped like this. Follow my lead. And Jake, I whispered, he's my friend, he's over there. Dad looked over at an exhausted and terrified Jake and then nodded. He pulled me down, placed me gently on the ground, then went and got Jake too. Jake looked stunned. It was not too hard to get him to walk back like a zombie after all the things we'd been through. We made a short few screams so they'd think Dad had gotten us. Then the three of us shuffled out of the door. By now, the other zombies seemed to have forgotten about us. Perhaps the effort of trying to eat us had tired them out. Some were sitting under trees playing chess and some were floating on lilos on the river. They were talking inarticulately. To be fair, I saw one of their teeth and lips were falling apart, so it mustn't have been very easy to keep a conversation. I felt sorry for the kids, who this morning had been just like me, just coming on a school camping trip, and now they were all zombies. Dad had given a little four-wheel drive, and I didn't recognise, to come and pick me up. There was Miss Purdy, the English teacher, in the back. She looked sweaty. One piece of grey hair was stuck wetly to her face. Beside her were two other kids I didn't recognise. They all looked stunned. Jake sat beside me on the passenger seat, so I could hardly believe it when Dad started the engine and changed gears and we were slowly driving away from this hellhole. This terror camp had destroyed my whole class. The zombies barely looked at us as we pulled out of the camping area and merged back onto the highway, going faster and faster as the night leaked onto the road's edge. Is everyone at home okay? I asked Dad. How did you get know what was happening? But Dad just said in a low voice, Everyone is okay, Alroy, and kept driving. Everyone else in the car was utterly silent. Eventually, we continued driving. I began to see that the problem had not just been confined to the camping ground, and there were general scenes of destruction as we approached my school. Lots of trees and rubbish bins had appeared to have been torn up from the ground, but before I could work out what this meant, I heard a strange sound in the back. My English teacher, Miss Purdy, making a barking sound under her breath, almost exactly like a dog. She tried to disguise it as a cough, but we all knew what we'd heard. I looked at Dad, and he looked so steadfastly at the road that I knew he heard it too. Very calmly, he slowed the car to a stop. Angela, he said to Miss Purdy, I believe this is the best place to leave you. No, I want to go home, Miss Purdy said, looking confused. Your home is not safe, said my dad gently. It's safe here. Look, there isn't a zombie in sight. It was then that I saw it. From where I was watching her in the rear vision mirror, a big green bite on her forearm. She must have been bitten by a zombie before dad picked her up. And for some reason, the magic that turns human victims into zombies had been slower to work on her than it had been with Mr. Masters. But after all, I reminded myself, Mr. Masters had six kids feeding on him. That was surely why it had been faster for him. Zombies are not the brightest monsters in the bunch. Miss Purdy still looked confused, but she allowed herself to take Dad's arm as he got her out, came around, and it was only then 
when she was standing back on the side of the road that she seemed to realise in some slow corner of her mind that it was not, not all as it seemed. Perhaps some slow stirring was alerting her the fact that she was letting out a delicious carload of humans disappear. Whatever it was, Dad returned to the driver's seat, started to rev the engine, and she began running. Trippingly after the car, her red dress now appeared tattered, and her skin turned bluish. Don't leave me, she cried. Come back! She still ran faster than a complete zombie, but Dad's car wasn't very fast in first gear. She caught up to the passenger door and tugged on it. Jake and I had forgotten to put our seatbelts on. He fell right out as she opened the door. Dad slammed his foot on the brakes, but the Jake just looked up and cried with his tears in his eyes. Just go. Be safe. No! I cried for my friend, but it was too late. Miss Purdy closed her eyes and took a bite of Jake's arm. Just below the elbow. It was too late for him. I sobbed into my car seat as I felt Dad hesitate, realising the same conclusion as I had. And the other occupants of our car as well. He reached over, slammed the passenger door and put his foot to the floor. We sped away, away from my friend Jake, who was now a zombie. Away from the highway and down the small lanes until we finally got to my school and there was no one about. Dad dropped the other boys who had been there with us safely at the library and it was just me and Dad steering back towards our house. I was still thinking about my poor friend Jake, tears blurring my eyes as we drove on. What happened, I said. I just couldn't understand it. I don't know exactly, said Dad. A hundred zombies started coming through the town and I left Mum and your brothers back at the house. Don't worry, though. The windows and doors are safely locked. After a few moments in which we drove silence, he added, when you get home, we're going to be all together and we'll think about what to do next, where we should go, I saw as we drove that many of the power lines had been gnawed and brought down. Night had almost fallen and everything was very dark. I could smell something unusual in, an, in the air. When we turned the village where we lived, I saw groups of people clustered under trees and at my letter boxes. It was the people of the town. Every single one of them was a zombie. I was astonished to see they seemed to be doing fine, absent the hunger for human flesh for there were certainly no humans around anymore. Some of them had lit candles and were slowly talking with each other, even laughing amongst themselves and playing ball games in the shadowy darkness until in the unlit windows I could see the contours of the, some of them moving around their houses. We didn't see a single hu other human, just zombies. Our town had become a zombie town. We pulled into our driveway and Dad told us to walk slowly again, shuffling as a zombie would, just in case any of them got wind of us. We got to the front door and Dad said softly at the keyhole, Matilda, Matilda, it's me. And then there was a laughing sound from inside and I knew that was the twins. And it wasn't before my, it wasn't my mum, but my little brothers who opened the door. That they, that should have been odd in itself. But then, seeing their sweet, joyful faces, I realised that they were not the little brothers I know and had and had known and loved. They too had turned into zombies. Sweetly, they pulled on my hand and led me into the lounge room. Our cat Goldie was laying on the floor with a chortling laugh. They made me pet her. Her hair was falling off in chunks strewn across the carpet and they crooned over her. Their little arms and left were bluish and they moved with slow movements. But they were still my little brothers and I wanted to cry. Where's mummy? Dad asked them in a strained voice. Coyly, they pointed out to the bathroom. We followed their guidance and stumbled to the bathroom. Mum was sitting in the bath, her eyes closed, and there was a lot of steam in the room. She raised her eyes to us when she heard us enter. 
There were two little gnome marks on her cheek. She was sweating like my English teacher, Miss Purdy, had. Matilda, my dad said, his voice cracking. The cat escaped, she said quietly. When he came back, I thought he was all right. But he bit the twins, and the twins bit me. Dad's eyes filled with tears. It's not so bad, said Mum. They seem very happy, and from what I can see, everyone else doesn't seem to be too sad either. Dad and I looked out of the window. I heard the twins giggle in the lounge room, and Goldie yelled contentedly. On the street, our neighbours were dancing in the moonlight. In the pale light, I could see their jagged zombie edges wobbling, occasionally bits of them falling off. Dad looked at me, and I looked at Dad, and then between ourselves we agreed, without even saying a word. Each of us held our arms out to Mum. She peacefully smiled, kissed our skin, then bit down on each of us. And that concludes Zombie Town. Your local radio station for the Ribble Valley. On air, online and on your smartphone app. Ribble FM.
I'm Tom Watts. I used to present here at Ribble FM, but I'm here today on Halloween to read you a very spooky story by horror author Edgar Allan Poe. It's called The Telltale Heart. It's true, yes, I have been ill, very ill. But why do you say I've lost control of my mind? Can you not see I have full control of my mind? Is it not clear that I'm not mad? Indeed, the illness has only made my mind, my feelings, my senses stronger, more powerful. My sense of hearing has especially become more powerful. I can hear sounds I'd never heard before. I heard sounds from heaven and sounds from hell. Listen, listen, and I will tell you how it happened. You will see and you will hear how healthy my mind is. It is impossible to say how the idea first entered my head. There was no reason at all for what I did. I did not hate the old man. I even loved him. He never hurt me. I didn't even want his money. I think it was his eye. His eye was like that of a vulture, the eye of one of those terrible birds that watch and wait while an animal dies, then fall upon the dead body and pull it to pieces to eat it. When the old man looked at me with his vulture eye, a cold feeling went down my back, even though the blood became cold. And so I finally decided that I had to kill the old man and close that eye forever. So, you think I'm mad. A madman cannot plan. But you should have seen me. During all that week, I was friendly to the old man as I could be, and warm and loving. Every night, at about 12 o'clock, I slowly opened his door. And when the door was opened wide enough that I could put my hand in, and then my head. In my hand, I held a light, covered over with a cloth, so that no light showed. And I stood there, quietly. Then, carefully, I lifted the cloth, just a little, so that a single, thin, small light fell across that eye. For seven nights I did this, seven long nights, every night at midnight. Always the eye was closed, so it was impossible for me to do the work. For it wasn't the old man I felt I had to kill. No, it was his eye, his evil eye. And every morning I went into his room with a warm and friendly voice, and I asked him how he'd slept. He could not guess that every night, just at twelve, I looked at him as he slept. The eighth night, I was more than usually careful. As I opened the door, the hands of a clock moved more quickly than did my hand. Never before had I felt so strongly in my own power. I was now sure of success. The old man was lying there, not dreaming that I was at his door. Suddenly he moved in his bed, and you may think I became afraid, but no. In the darkness of his room, it was thick and black. I knew he could not see the opening of the door. I continued to push the door, softly, slowly. I put my head and then my hand inside with the covered light. Suddenly, the old man sat up in his bed and cried, who's there? I stood quite still. For a whole hour, I did not move, nor did I hear him again lie down in his bed. He just sat there listening. Then I heard a sound, a low cry of fear which escaped from the old man. Now I know he was sitting up in his bed, filled with fear. I knew that he knew that I was there. He did not see me. He could not hear me there. He felt me there. Now he knew that death was standing there. Slowly, little by little, I lifted the cloth until a small, small light escaped from under it to fall upon, to fall upon that vulture eye. 
It was open, wide, wide open, and my anger increased as it looked straight at me. I could not see the old man's face anymore. Only that eye, that hard blue eye, and the blood in my body became like ice. Have I not told you that my hearing had become unusually strong? Now I could hear a quick, low, soft sound, like the sound of a clock heard through a wall. It was the beating of the old man's heart. I tried to stand quietly, but the sound grew louder. The old man's fear must have been great indeed. And as that, that sound grew louder, my anger became greater and more painful. But it was more than anger. In that quiet night, in the dark silence of that bedroom, my anger became fear. For the heart was beating so loudly that I was sure that someone must hear. The time had come. I rushed into the room crying, die, die. The old man gave a loud cry of fear as I fell upon him and held the bedcovers tightly over his head. Still his heart was beating, but I smiled as I felt the success was near. So for many minutes that heart continued to beat, but at last the beating stopped. The old man was dead. I took away the bedcovers and I held my ear over his heart. There was no sound. Yes, he was dead. Dead as the stone. His eye would trouble me no more. So, I'm mad, you say. Well, you should have seen how careful I was to put the body where no one could find it. First, I cut off the head, then the arms and the legs, and I was careful not to let a single drop of blood fall upon the floor. I pulled up three floorboards that formed the floor, and I put the pieces of body there. Then I put the boards down again carefully, so carefully, in fact, that no human eye could see that it had been moved. As I finished this work, I heard someone was at the door. It was now four o'clock in the morning, but still dark. I had no fear, however, as I went down to open the door and three men were at the door, three officers of the police. One of the neighbours had heard the old man's cry and had called the police. These three had come to ask questions and search the house. I asked the policeman to come in. The cry, I said, it was my own, in a dream. And the old man, I said, he was away. He, he had gone to visit a friend in the country. I took them through the whole house, telling them to search it all, to search it well. I led them finally to the old man's bedroom. As if playing a game with them, I asked them to sit down and just talk for a while. My easy, quiet manner made the policeman believe my story. So they sat there talking to me with a friendly way. But although I answered them in the same way, I soon wished that they'd go. My head hurt and there was a strange sound in my ears. I talked more and faster, but the sound became clearer, and still they sat and talked. Suddenly, I knew that the sound was not in my ears. No, it was not just inside my head. At that moment, I must have become quite white. I talked still faster and louder, and the sound, too, became louder. It was a quick, low, soft sound, like the sound of a clock heard through the wall, a sound I knew well. Louder it became, and louder. Why did the men not go? I pushed the chair across the floor to make more noise to cover up the terrible sound, and I talked even louder, and still the men sat there and smiled. Was it possible that they couldn't hear? No, they heard. I was certain of it. They knew. Now it was they who were playing a game with me. They, I was suffering more than they could bear from the smiles and the sound. Louder and louder and louder. Suddenly... I could bear it no longer. I pointed at the boards and I cried, yes, yes, I killed him. Pull up the floorboards and you shall see. I killed him. But why does his heart not stop beating? Why does it not stop?
streets of Soho in the rain He was looking for the place called Lee Ho Fuchs Gonna get a big dish of beef chow mein Kitchen door. You better not let him in. Little old lady got mutilated late last night. Werewolves of London again. Never mind the werewolves of London, it's the werewolves of Clivero and of Ribble Valley today, isn't it? With our Halloween special here, 106.7 Ribble FM, uh, 1 and 7, uh, I haven't heard that for years. And if you love your music like that, by the way, we've got Solid Gold Sunday uh, coming tomorrow between 9 and 12. And then it's all done stop from 12 till 4 as well. So it's uh, well worth joining us on a Sunday afternoon with Solid Gold Sunday. Amazing. Uh, so we're going to get ready for Jasper Cherry, who's going to be coming up in around about 5, 10 minutes time. Don't forget, if you want to watch his act... You can do on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Click through to Mixcloud and there you'll be able to get all the details how you can watch Jasper Cherry live with some exclusive tricks here in our spooktacular for Halloween on 106.7. Also online on your smart speaker and Mixcloud where you can watch live. Full details, ribblefm.com. Taking us to there though, we've got Rihanna on the way, Barbara Streisand, Harold Arlen with classic Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. And this is Van Halen of Running With The Devil.
Northern Local, across the Ribble Valley, 106.7. This is Ribble FM.
23 minutes past 8 o'clock for you Saturday night. It's 106.7 Ribble FM. We are getting prepared for our next act, which is absolutely fantastic. You may have seen him on Britain's Got Talent final a couple of weeks ago now. He's a Ribblesdale High School pupil as well. Uh, so if you go to Ribblesdale High School, I expect you to have a round of applause for our Jasper in just a few moments' time. You can watch live online if you go online now, ribblefm.com. He's going to be live uh, performing a few trick-or-treats for us this Halloween as well. Coming up... Uh, ribblefm.com before then ding dong the witch is dead once there was a wicked witch in the lovely land of Oz and a wickeder 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 witch there never ever was she filled the folks in munchkin land with terror and with dread till one fine day from Kansas a house fell on her head and the coroner pronounced her dead. And through the town the joyous news went running. The joyous news that the wicked old witch was finally done in. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Witch old witch. Well, uh, the wicked witch. Oh. Ding dong, the wicked witch is dead. Wake up, you sleepy head. Rub your eyes. Get out of that bed. Wake up, the wicked witch is dead. She's gone where the goblins go below. Below, below your hole. Let's open up and sing. Sing the news out <laughs> Ding dong the merry oh Sing it high and sing it low Let them know the wicked old witch is dead Everyone's glad she took such a crowning Getting hit by a house is even worse than drowning Let them know the wicked old witch is dead 
Love that tune, Barbara Streisand and Harold Alden and uh, Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead. Reminds me sometimes of trips to South Wales. Uh, this is Ribble FM, this is Mark Blackman looking after you. And right now, live via Mixcloud and on 106.7 FM, I suggest you get yourself online, actually. Uh, Mixcloud, it's Britain's Got Talent finalist for 2020 and local legend, Mr. Jasper Cherry. Hello, hi, uh, it's great to be here. And uh, I'd like to start off with some magic, obviously. That's what I'm going to be doing. We're going to be doing some magic. And I'd like to start off with a, quite a Halloween-themed trick. So um, I was showing this trick to my sister, actually, okay? And uh, so I showed her, look, I've got a ghost here, okay? So I've got one ghost. Yeah. I've got a second ghost, okay? And the last card is actually an ace of spades. And I said, this is the card that you need to keep your eye on. So I said, okay, if the ace is on top, right? Okay. And I place it to the bottom, I said, where's the ace? It's on the bottom. That's exactly what she said. And I said, no, that's a ghost, okay? And then she said, back on top. And I said, no, that's a ghost. And then she said, maybe in the middle. And I said, nope, that's a ghost as well. And then she said, well, you don't even have an ace. And I said, no, you're wrong yet again. All right. So then she said, all right, well, um, maybe you have more than three cards. And I said, nope, that's one, two, three cards. Okay, so then this is the strange bit. So I said, if I have an ace of spades, a ghost, what is this card? It's a ghost. See, she said that as well, but I actually say trick or treat. There we go. Um, all right, first trick done. Now, here I have a deck of cards, all right? And this deck of cards is actually my favourite blue deck of cards, okay? Now, I know it's quite weird that I have a favourite deck, but you'll see why in just a moment. So, I'm going to go through the cards like this, okay? And Tom, I'd just like you to tell me when to stop, all right? Okay. Stop. Right there. Okay. Yes. So, do you want the Ace of Spades, the, uh, the King of Clubs, or should I keep going? Uh, keep going. Keep going, all right. Any point? Stop. Right there. Okay, yeah. so the uh, the Jack of Clubs or the Seven of Diamonds, which one do you want? Seven of Diamonds. You want the Seven, are you sure? Yes. Yes, okay. Now we're going to lose the Seven somewhere in the middle of the deck. Okay. Now what's going to happen is if I just rub my hand on the back of the cards here, you see they start warming up. Okay, they get so warm that they actually decide to change colour and now they're red. But not just the top card, look, all of the cards. All of the cards... A red. Every single... Oh, we've got a blue one. And you said the seven of diamonds, right? Yes. The seven of diamonds right there. Now, you see, all we need to do is just give the seven another rub. And just like that, that changes to red too. Well, um... Insane. That, that is pretty crazy, right? Yes. Yes. Okay, um, let me see here. Uh, yeah, all right, okay, okay. Now what I'm going to do is I actually will give the cards a couple of cuts here, like that, and I'll even shuffle the cards, some as well, like that. Okay, now I want, uh, in fact, let me show you, look, all of the cards are different here, okay, you can see, they're all different, right? Yeah? Yeah. All right. Now what I'm going to do is I actually am going to cut the cards, and I want you to tell them when to stop. Stop. Right there? Yeah. Cut them again. And I'm going to show you what the top card is here. All right, can you take a look at that? Yep. And I'll try and show the camera as best as possible. 
All right, now I'm going to give the cards a cut. And just like that, I hope that card should actually maybe have vanished. Has it gone? No. It's not gone? No. Ah, okay. Um, right, let, let me see here. Let me see. Uh, are you sure? Are yes. You sure? Right, okay. Um, right, I'll cut the cards maybe two, three more times, and now it should have vanished. Is it gone? Yeah. It's gone. Now, what was your card? Jack of Diamonds. The Jack of Diamonds? Yes. You see, right, I'm going to do this as fairly as possible. Just with a snap, there should be one card. If I reach into my pocket, there's one card. Look, it's folded up. Would you like to open up that card? And that right there should be... Jack of Diamonds. Jack of Diamonds. There we go. Okay, now... Uh, uh, over here, we've got a box. I'm going to come back to that box in just a second. Okay. But before I do, I'd like you to... Um, do you just want to choose one of these coins here? Just choose one, any one you like. Which one do you want? Uh, and then you can take the pen. I'd like you to initial it or sign it or write okay. something on it. Okay. Which one? That, that one right there. Okay. Uh, you can take them and, like I say, just write something on it so then you'll know that it's definitely yours. I can see... I know, it's, it's quite dark in there. Is the Sharpie working? Yeah, just about. Just about. Okay, will you recognise that if you see it again? Yes. Yes, okay, I'll take the pen back from you. Sure. And I will also take the coin. Okay. Right there. And watch. All it takes is one, two, three, and the coin actually vanishes. It's gone. Now, you see, I had this box over here the entire time, right? Yeah. It's been here right from the beginning. Now, if you was to um, just name any gift, okay, what gift do you think would be in here? Uh, a watch. A watch. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah. Yeah? You want a watch to be in there? Yeah. Right, okay, well, you see, if I just give the package a little shake, I think your watch should actually appear in that package. Now, you could have named any gift you liked, right? Yeah, yeah. You could have named, like, trainers. I mean, not that trainers would really fit in here, but it could be maybe a ring or something like that. But you named a watch. Now, I'd like you to open up that package. It's going to be crazy if it is. All right. There's another box inside. Yeah. I'll tip it out. And then... Right, so... Inside is another box. Would you like to remove the lid? And we should see, there it is, a watch right there. And you could have named any gift. Now, this is where it gets crazy because your coin disappeared. But if I give it a bit of a shake, it sounds like there's something inside. Do you want to hold out your palm? I'll set the watch onto your palm here. And I'm actually going to unscrew the back of the watch. And inside there's a coin. One coin, would you like to take that out and try and verify, is that your coin? That is my coin. That is his coin. That's absolutely crazy. And you could have named any gift, and then it appeared inside of that gift. I'll take the watch back. 
Yeah, that is uh, pretty, pretty crazy. Now, I've got one more trick for you guys tonight. So, I'm actually, we're going to try and create a totally random number. So, I'm going to use my calculator for this. So, let's see. Um, we're going to try and create quite a big number. So, would you like to tell me the time that you roughly woke up this morning? Uh, six o'clock. Six o'clock. That's pretty early, but I want to try and make this as random and as hard as possible for me. So, would you like to make it a bit harder? So, maybe like 6.01 or 6.02 or something like that, or 5.59. Do you want to tell me what, what would you like? It doesn't have to be the numbers, but... Sure. You want me to tell you? Yes. 6.12. 612, okay? I'm going to enter that into my calculator. So we'll go 6 and then 12. And then we're going to times that by the time that you went to bed last night. Um, 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock. We're going to try and make this more random again. Or, or, or I can keep that if you want. Five minutes past 11. Five minutes past 11. So that's 11.05. Yeah. Okay, 05. Now I'm going to times that. By one more number and I'm gonna go I'm just gonna choose it so we'll go I'm gonna go for that one there I'm now gonna press equals I'm gonna set the phone down now, now we get this massive number okay so it's uh, three in fact you can read it out if you like uh, I'm bad with numbers uh, three hundred and eleven thousand and twenty <laughs> yes that's not how you say that is it but it's a big number yeah it is a big number that is the point now before I, uh, before I even came into the studios tonight, I wrote one thing and placed it in an envelope. Now, that envelope has actually been stuck to my back. So if I, I'm going to try and keep my mic on here, but you see there is one envelope that's actually stuck to my back, and it says my prediction on it. We'll now open this prediction up. Okay, and whilst I put my jacket back on, would you like to take out what's inside? Is there something inside? Yes. Yes. There is a piece of paper. Open up that piece of paper, and you want to place it down on the table, and the camera can see, and we'll read it out. That is 311,020. Is that in the camera there? It is. That's perfect. Now, you see, this number could only have ever happened on tonight, in tonight, today. Do you know why? No. Well, you see, it's really weird that all of their numbers times together to actually make this number because it's actually today's date yeah. on Halloween, the 31st of the 10th. That is 2020. I'm Jasper Cherry. Thank you all for watching and good night. Jasper Cherry, ladies and gentlemen. Let's give a big round of applause, please. There we go. How good was that? And I'm sure if you missed out on it, you can watch it again on Riddle TV. Once again, we will get it all uploaded for you. As you can see, all the family are there now. Claire, little baby sister, and Jasper as well. What a fantastic show it was. Everybody loved it indeed. Right, we're going to go half hour in the mix now with some more Halloween tunes, so enjoy the rest of your Halloween, whatever you're up to. Stay safe, and of course, we'll see you again very, very soon. Myself on The Breakfast Show from Monday morning from 7. 
For all your local news, weather, programming, or to listen to your favorite interviews again, check the website at ribblefm.com. 106.7 Ribble FM. Put a spell on you. Cause you You better stop the things you do. I ain't lying.
we're not mean In our town of Halloween Ribble FM People are strange When you're a stranger Faces look ugly When you're alone Women seem wicked When you're unwanted Streets are uneven When you're down When you're strange Faces come out of the rain When you're strange
local radio station for the Ribble Valley. On air, online and on your smartphone app. Ribble FM.
Clitheroe, Gisburn, Warley. This is your local radio station. This is Ribble FM.
the night There's a man in the shadows with a gun in his eye And a blade shining no so bright There's evil in the hand, there's thunder in the sky And a killer's on the bloodshot streets Born down in the tunnel with a deadly horizon Oh, I swear I saw a young boy down in the cover He was stopping the foam in the heat
Before the gates of heaven I'll come crawling on back to Station.